The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon and good evening. This is Aaron Strout. I am the CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today I am pleased to welcome two special guests uh, coming to us from the UK. We have Professors Seiku and Gareth Griffiths. Seiku is the Chief Investigator at the University of Liverpool, and Gareth Griffiths is a professor at Southampton in the clinical trial unit, focusing on clinical trials. They are part of a team of scientists who aim to speed up drug testing in pandemic situations and beyond. And together they founded the Agile Coronavirus Drug Testing Initiative. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. So I'm really excited to have you both on. We did a little bit of talking up front and prepping. I have to say what you two are doing with your team is nothing short of amazing. And I think we're going to have a lot of questions as to why it works so well, how it's helping, and why more people aren't taking advantage of this process, right? And I know I think this is an open source process, so uh, more people can. Hopefully this will help get the word out. Let's start with a simple question for those who don't know. Uh, what is Agile? And say maybe you'll lead us off with that. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. So we realized very early on that conventional drug development was simply not made for a pandemic. And it's necessarily rigorous, but it's far too slow and not responsive. And the sort of trials of, of drugs that were being repurposed at that point was being undertaken with candidates that were selected where the evidence would not ordinarily be sufficient for them to be included in phase three trials. So we thought that the risk of failure was, was higher than it ought to be. And with that in mind, there was a group of academics in Liverpool, and equally, there was a group working on this in Southampton and Lancaster, and we all got together. The Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, the University of Liverpool, the Southampton Clinical Trials Unit, and the University of Lancaster. And we thought that it was time to, to, to design a new platform, a new way of doing drug development. And that's what Agile is. So Agile is a way of taking drugs through uh, uh, sometimes first in man right through to the stage where they would be could plausibly be included in big randomized trials and i will let my colleague gareth describe it but the three words i would use to describe the agile trial are efficient flexible and seamless yes and what we saw across the world is that there were a reasonably large number of later phase studies so these are trials that were set up where there was a, a view a drug could work. And what Agile does, it creates the pipeline for the new potential treatments that can slot into those existing trial platforms that are set up. To make it efficient, we did a number of things. The first thing we did is to create a master protocol and then create separate candidate-specific trial protocols for each candidate that we wanted to evaluate. The advantage of that is that the regulatory agency could approve the master protocol that gave the similar information that every candidate would, would need. For example, the database, data entry, the essentials of the design, the background of monitoring, how we deal with our safety desk, how we oversee, how we interact with the sponsor. And what it did is allowed us, once we had regulatory approval, every time a new candidate would come along, we could add that in via an amendment as an additional randomized study at, at the back of that pro existing protocol. 
we also used a Bayesian approach. Now, most of the time, trials will use a, something called a frequentist approach, which is basically we collect the data, we have a hypothesis, and we use that data alone that we've collected within the trial to make a decision. What a Bayesian approach does, before you even collect the data, you have a number of priors. These could be prior beliefs. So a new candidate could come along, and quite often if you talk to different groups, some will say, I just don't believe that would work. Others will say, that will definitely work. So by having prior beliefs factors into that will help us in our decision making. Because what we need to do, is just, if there's skeptics about a drug, we need to persuade them that it works. And if there's enthusiastics, we need to show evidence that it doesn't work. And with a Bayesian approach, you preset these prior distributions. You then collect the data, which they call likelihood data. You combine that pre-prior distribution with the actual likelihood data, and you create something called a posterior distribution, which you can use to determine probabilities of showing benefit. Now, what the efficient design does, it starts off as a phase one. We will randomize, usually in the ratio of two to one, to an experimental new candidate versus the standard of care. Now, when we first started the study, there wasn't any standard of care because there were no proven treatments. But we know, um, since we've started the study, new standard of cares are popping out of the later phase. And we can efficiently include that into the trial as we go along. We will assess each dose level using a Bayesian analysis to then determine whether to escalate to the next dose. Once we found that safe dose, we'll expand it into a very early randomized phase two, and then we will use that to show early signals of activity and benefit for the new experimental drugs. At that point, we can quickly highlight them to the existing later phase platforms to incorporate into their studies. Well, thank you for that in-depth description, and I think you actually put it in enough of lay terms where even uh, my simple brain could, could wrap my uh, head around it. I have a few questions. One of the things I do want to say up front, which um, we all talked about in our prep is, you know, and say, I think you touched on this, that the challenge here is getting something up quickly while maintaining that high quality and ensuring patient safety, right, and data integrity. And Gareth, thank you for sharing the process. If I'm not mistaken, the first Agile trial is now open and testing the new Ridgeback Merck drug. Before the platform launched, you had to get full approval from the MHRA, which for those tracking along, I believe is the UK version of the FDA. This is the thing that I think is the $64,000 question. Everything you explained seems to make a ton of sense. We know that our regulatory bodies, with all due respect to them, don't always see things as, as cut and dried as we see them. What steps did you have to do and, and how were you able to do that so easily when maybe others have, have not had the same success before you? So we were very lucky in the UK in that both the Ethics Committee, the Human Research Authority, uh, and the Medicines Regulator, the MHRA, both got it immediately. And that, that was quite amazing. So we engaged in preliminary discussions with both of these groups. And uh, I'll just give you an example. The Human Research Authority said, this is very complicated, but it makes a great deal of sense and we can cope with it. So we'll assign you a caseworker uh, who will liaise with you on a weekly basis until you're ready to submit for us. And we'll convene a specialist um, a panel to, to specifically evaluate your 
proposal and the MHRA did pretty much the same and the accelerated timetables really were accelerated. Uh, what is a process that normally took over a month took around a week in its first instance. So, so we were very fortunate in that regard. The, the other advantage we had in the UK, there's a lot of UK research infrastructure that's funded by the National Institute for Health Research, which is effectively Department of Health government funded. There's also a lot of infrastructure funded by charities doing research in other areas, such as Cancer Research UK, uh, which are examples of two funders that core fund Southampton Clinical Trials Unit. When we got hit by COVID-19 in the UK, the NIHR and CIUK, those funders, allowed their researchers to turn their attention to COVID-19 to develop clinical trials and other research projects quickly. So we did have the advantage in the UK for those other charities in other areas that were prepared to allow their researchers to help with COVID-19. So it sounds like if there's a silver lining to COVID-19, it was the fact that it did enable this process, which hopefully helps us well beyond just COVID-19 to move forward. To that end, let's talk a little bit about the vision, the potential for this platform, right? So right now, I believe you're focused mainly on COVID-19 treatments, not vaccines. Where do we take this and, and what are you envisioning? Hopefully the pandemic has an end. Where that is, we don't know, but uh, talk a little bit about that, say, if you don't mind. So the, the master protocol that was described by Gareth is very flexible. Uh, and we discussed this again with the regulatory authorities. It allows us to select from a menu of endpoints uh, those that are most relevant to the action of the drug. So if it's an antiviral, we want to look at viral efficacy and viral clearance. It also allows us to select those patients for whom the drug deployment would be most relevant. So it would either be sick hospitalized patients or else patients in the community. And although we have this very large flexibility built into Agile, the sweet spot of Agile is primarily focusing on antiviral drugs and use in mild to moderate patients in the community. And that is intentionally so. So for example, if you had a drug that was a potent antiviral, much more potent than the ones that we have at the moment, uh, that was easily given, cheap and affordable, particularly globally in low middle income countries as well, you could achieve a lot of things. You could stop people from becoming sick even though they got infected. So it would be like flu. You could potentially interrupt transmission between people in the same household or between households. You could protect healthcare workers. And so suddenly you would turn a disease from what is uh, one that shuts down the country, closes uh, the economy, that would be transformational. Schools would open again, theaters would open, trains would run, and the world could get back to something like what it used to be. Uh, and that is the aim of our platform. Gareth, anything to add to that? No, and it's a bit like what's been happening in cancer over the years. You know, prevention and diagnosis is better than cure. And the earlier we can catch COVID-19 to prevent our patients even having to go to hospital is highly advantageous as we move our way out of COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it is all about the prevention these days, right? Versus letting people get to that stage and then having to treat it. We've, we've talked a lot about the positive. We know that there have been roadblocks and, and things that sort of have gotten in your way. Let's talk about the, the ones that you've sort of overcome so far and maybe the ones that you continue to face throughout the process. So one of the biggest challenges we've found is that the UK went to lockdown. 
And so it meant that our staff, uh, have, although we have 70 staff here within Southampton Clinical Trials Unit, all of them had to work at home. Also our schools closed. So it was a challenge, not just working at home, it was balancing that work-life setup. So, you know, the fact that we were able to set up with our staff from Liverpool and Southampton to study quickly, you know, is to fly the flag of respect to our staff that dedicated their time, could work out of hours over weekends, over the Easter holidays to allow us to do it. Say's already mentioned, you know, one of the other biggest factors is usually the MHRA but they work so quickly in the UK in unprecedented times that that bottleneck was not an issue for us as we set up the study. I should also add that the hospitals went into lockdown. And so that meant that people who shouldn't have been there could not be there. Uh, and that included uh, volunteers for research. There were huge operational considerations take, knowingly taking someone who had COVID was potentially infectious into a research setting at a time when PPE was in shortage and, and the whole system was stressed and people had trouble traveling. And we had to overcome this and we did so in a number of ways that were, that were innovative. So things that we had never thought would be possible suddenly became possible. The MHRA allowed us to give drugs first in man in porter cabins in the middle of the car parks, which we had hired. We had managed to get uh, block contracts within Liverpool from taxi firms who were willing to take patients who had COVID and were infectious, driving them around the city. That was fantastic. And this was at a time when taxi drivers were making no money from, from every other source of usual income. So we got all those together. The, the, we were helped in some ways because the general practitioners all grouped together to produce GP hubs. So one GP hub would be located in a central position where about maybe seven GP practices of around 100,000 patients would all refer patients with COVID symptoms and whatever else they had to this hub for assessment. So we managed to rent rooms or to put porter cabins uh, in the car parks of those places in order to try and recruit in the community. But it was certainly a challenge for us. The other thing that helped us is technology. And you know some of the complexities of how to move paper around even within hospitals was a challenge because you basically couldn't hand a piece of paper to either the patient or the researcher that was collecting data. So we were fortunate to already use a full electronic remote data capture system in our database, which just allows us to open in the UK without using paper and indeed across the world of anyone that's got internet access. We as academics obviously don't have as much technology as commercial industry. But we quickly adapt and created e-consent processes and other systems and processes that just allowed us to operate without paper in this pandemic setting. So one of the things that you mentioned, Gareth, that really was remarkable to me that I didn't think about is in the lockdown, there are people like myself who, you know, I could sit behind any desk anywhere in the world, so to speak. I mean, it's good to connect with people, but there are folks that need to be in labs and doing actual testing. How does that happen when everyone's locked at home, especially to your point with children, you know, trying to be a school teacher and a parent and doing your work? I think it, there is the benefit of, yes, we do work longer hours and, you know, you can sort of do things that are extraordinary, but there are, I would think, limitations in terms of getting your work done when you're not in that lab environment or I know you touched a little bit on the, the collecting of the data piece, so that's helpful, but, you know, how do you overcome those steps? In terms of 
Southampton as a clinical trials unit, we adapted pretty quick. When we saw uh, what was happening in the rest of the UK, that was being hit by COVID before us, in the few weeks before we even needed to, we were trialing how to run working at home in an efficient sort of way. So we can function at that level. For us, it was juggling you know, parents' time with their children and having the flexibility to allow your staff to work uh, hours outside that traditional nine to five. And you know, I think whatever happens with COVID-19, even when it goes, it's just been a complete change in your office-based working patterns, which I think will, will go on to the future. Say we'll be able to tell you what impact was in terms of the labs and the hospital sort of setting. So Aaron, with regards to the clinical staff and the laboratory staff, we obviously understood the constraints people were under, uh, and that included childcare and looking after uh, sick people, uh, relatives, and shielding. And we made their participation voluntary. And I was absolutely amazed, I still am, at the amount of energy that we got from those people. Here was a pandemic that had shut down the country, shut down the world, that was something that was completely unprecedented in their lifetime and they responded accordingly and so we we made working flexible as gareth said and suddenly we started getting email exchanges between three four people at about two two thirty in the morning uh working through to five and then someone else picking it up from six it was quite amazing i have never developed a trial from scratch never developed an approved protocol from scratch in such a short time. I don't know if you have, Gareth. No. <laughs> well, again, silver linings, right? It's brought us together in these ways and you know, people really sort of working together against the common en uh, enemy. I guess one of the questions I have related to that is we are really focused on finding a COVID vaccine, right? It seems like that's what a lot of the, the news cycles talk about, even though treatments are very important, testing equally important, tracing, how was it that you were able to, in the midst of a pandemic, with so many people focused on the vaccine development, how did you find the right funding for this platform? And then we'll talk a little bit about some, getting some of the candidates into the, into the pipeline. So if I can start, I, you're right. Uh, there's a perception that once there is a vaccine, there's no need for anything else. Uh, and that is certainly not true. So the Success of a vaccine is not a given, although we are all very hopeful that, that given the amount of money and the patience and the, the thought and expertise gone into it, that, that that would be something that would yield results. But no vaccine is ever 100% protective. And in the groups that you're most worried about, people who can't mount an immune response, for example, or elderly people, uh, you, you worry that vaccine efficacy might even be less. And so if a vaccine was 60 or 70% protective, we would grab it with both hands. But that would be 30 to 40% of people who did not respond, who could still get ill, who could still go to ITU. So it's a question of a vaccine and a treatment. That's what we need for this disease. You know, you're preaching to the converted on that one. I'm actually a believer that I think the treatments may be more important. And as our head of CDC said the other day, that masks are maybe even more important than vaccines. So I totally get that. I guess the bigger question is, how did you convince other people that were so focused on the vaccine that what you just said made so much sense and were able to get this approved and you know get the fundraising for it? I think a similar understanding was emerging at the same time amongst the major funders. So 
For example, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with the Wellcome Trust had put together something called the Therapeutics Accelerator, specifically to look for drugs in the community setting for mild, moderate disease for exactly the reasons that we, we, we mentioned earlier on. The World Health Organization equally looking for it with a great concern that such treatment, were it to become available, must be accessible and equitably available across all settings, rich and poor. Well, thank goodness that they had the, the brilliance to do that. And again, kudos for you for figuring out that that was such a critical piece. Let's talk a little bit about the finding the drugs. So obviously you've got the process, you get the funding, you get the approval. How do you go about seeking out the right candidates? And I, I know we touched on this a little bit at the beginning, but you know, let's get down to brass tacks on that one. So th- this was a multifaceted approach. First of all, because I've been working in the antiviral field for many years, uh, I knew people and I knew people who knew people. And so that's how we started. Uh, we reached out to all the companies that were working in the field of viral hepatitis and the field of HIV drugs uh, because they would have large candidate libraries from which they could go and explore. And gradually we became known in the field. People started referring other clinical trials units. Uh, as Gareth said, the UK is quite fortunate in that we have organized national network of 23 clinical research facilities. So these are phase one facilities. These are facilities that drug companies would naturally go to, very well connected and all talking to each other. And so whenever a industry partner or an academic partner came to them with a, with a potential drug, they would refer on to us. And gradually, as we've become known, the contacts that we've had have grown and grown. And as, as I mentioned earlier, there, there were already established later phase platforms and uh, a number of us were linked with those. And what was happening is the drugs were coming to those later phase platforms. And when they were looking at them, they were saying, look, we just can't include this because we don't have the early phases. And it's at that point we can take those candidates to Agile and say, listen, we can create the evidence for the dose and a signal for activity for these later phase platforms to then take them through to practice changing evidence. Something you said earlier, just to pivot a little bit here, Gareth, back to the Bayesian piece. Yeah. I know you walked us through and it makes a lot of sense because it helps us accelerate. You talked about, you know, what the model looks like. I guess one of the questions I have is how did you determine that this was the right approach and why is it that more people don't use this approach? I know you mentioned the other sort of standard approach, which I'm blanking on the name of it, but talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Our colleague, Professor Thomas Jackie, who's based in the uh, University of Lancaster, has done a lot of methodological research in this type of approach. And he's investigated and published on using Bayesian approaches, you know, working with new novel agents and efficient designs. He's undertaking simulations to so show they can be efficient and, and speedier. What we found as methodologists, because I'm a statistician myself, is when you get new novel approaches, what you're ultimately aiming to do is to allow that intervention to become standard of care in patients. What we do know in different countries, that means it needs to go through various agencies to be approved. Be that the FDA in America, for example, and European sort of equivalents. Now they have their approach on how to design a study to create sufficient evidence. And 
you know, Bayesian approaches have gained more and more um, acceptability with such those approvers, especially in later uh, phase studies. So it's the natural step. Obviously, when you have a pandemic like this, you know, you, what you're trying to do is to create the evidence in the quickest way. But as I said, you do not compromise patient safety nor data integrity. And so when we use this design, it was clear it was one of the most efficient designs so that we can identify the dose and that signal that it may work. What you have to remember is they're then taken forward from that point. So the later phase studies that are running in the UK, such as a very large recovery study, which is in hospital patients, and the principal trial, which is more in the community sort of patients, are much larger, almost non-Bayesian studies. But they will collect hundreds, sometimes thousands of patients. And they are the ones that will actually provide the evidence to the FDA and the other appropriate regulatory agencies to change the standard of care. So when we look at the pipeline of what's happening with research, it works really well in the UK because we have colleagues working in the preclinical setting where they're getting very novel agents in, in non-humans in their laboratories and they say this works, but we need a mechanism in which someone can assess this very novel new COVID drug. And Agile can pick that up. We can do first in human, we can determine the dose, get a signal, and these much more sort of regulatory sort of expected sort of later phase studies can take it forward so it changes the design. So it fits very well and it just allows us to use that Bayesian approach to its full potential. Well, thank you for that detailed explanation and that's helpful. And I guess the, I'd like to wrap up with a little bit of the what's next. The first, I think that probably a lot of people are wondering, and I'm sure it's a main question you get asked all the time with your stakeholders is when do we expect to receive, receive results from the first trials and when can we potentially see a dedicated COVID treatment? I know that's probably the one that's the hardest to answer since if you knew that, then you'd be very, very popular gentlemen, right? But uh, I'm sure you have some sense of what the timing might look like. Say, do you want to start? Yes. So we're at the stage where we've started our first trial and we're enrolling and we're developing four other trials at the same time at various stages behind it. The portfolio that we have assembled has been rigorously scrutinized by an independent scientific advisory board made of a mixture of disease experts, virologists, people who are experts in developing monoclonal antibodies and people who are uh, have worked for many years at very high level in the drug development industry. And they have looked at the compounds and recommended to us whether to take on a molecule or not. And the current portfolio that we have is very va varied. It's got some monoclonal antibodies. It's got, some, uh, uh, it's got one agent that, that is an immunomodulatory uh, agent. Um, and so we, we try and hedge our bets in as many ways as possible. And I think, you know, we, we, we got to the stage now where we've almost got sufficient patients to make a decision on the first initial dose level of our first agent. So, you know, we're seeing that potential new candidates will be coming out of Agile, you know, within the next couple of months for others to then take forward to the next stage. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I guess my last question is, if someone wanted to get involved, I know, Gareth, you shared a website with me at www.agiletrial.net. 
Yes. But, I mean, I would have to think that there are a number of people that would probably listen to this or are finding out about you and say, wow, we, we would love to find out more or get involved. Any recommendations for next steps there? Say, I'll start with you. We very much welcome collaboration. It's the lifeblood of Agile. We see stepping back that Agile would be an engine through which you could take strong candidates and turn them into plausible candidates that would be ready to enter into big trials such as recovery, such as solidarity. So we very much welcome any uh, contact with people who are interested uh, and the agiletrial.net website that you mentioned will have details of how to get hold of us. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, one of our funders is uh, Unitaid. And the mission of Unitaid is to look for affordable global treatments. So we are expanding internationally. We look in to open in places like Africa, South Africa, and Uganda, and exploring other options. And as academics, we are happy to share. So if we create evidence, you know, for a candidate, and others are similar candidates, it's our philosophy at the end when we report, data will be made available to merge with others to get the best conclusion about drugs. The other thing we have done as well is we've actually published our master protocol on in the journal trials. And we made it very clear in that publication, especially countries of low or middle income, should they wish to use our documentation to help them as templates to do what they need to do in their countries, we're very happy to share that with them. Oh, that's amazing. And thank you both for what you're doing. We covered a lot of ground, probably a lot more ground we could have coved. So this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. Fascinating conversation today with Professor Seiku, who is the chief investigator at the University of Liverpool, Professor Gareth Griffiths, who is a clinical trial professor at Southampton in the clinical trial unit. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time today and sharing all of your wisdom. This is amazingly uh, informative. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at whogroup.com slash what to know.